This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Walk a mile in her shoes. Often we can underestimate what the world looks like from the perspective of another. What does it feel like to experience the world as a First Nations woman, as a woman from a culturally or linguistically diverse background, from the perspective of a woman who lives on or below the poverty line, or even as a woman trying to lead a business or an idea in our modern world? I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. Welcome to the final episode of Season 4. In Part 2 of the wrap-up, we look at two overarching themes. First, we visit some of the challenges our guests have faced during their journeys. The discrimination because they were women. Women from diverse backgrounds, Indigenous women, outsiders, or women without financial means. Then to wrap up the season, we finish on a high note with the ways in which our guests think we should lead for the next decade. How to work, where to work, and what leadership should look like going forward. This is leadership as it should be. We start with the importance of role models, especially when you don't see yourself reflected in the world that you interact with every day. If you see it, you can be it, was a sentiment that was expressed by so many of our guests. If we need more role models to show younger women that they can be whatever they want to be, then surely it is incumbent on us to make their journey easier. Sadly, racism and discrimination also featured heavily in many of our discussions. It's not easy listening to Sharon Shooter in particular talk about her experiences when she first came to Australia. It's hard to hear that we make it so difficult for our new Australians. We finish this section with a reminder that period poverty is a real issue for many women and one that we don't speak about often enough. It's such a powerful image, isn't it, to think of a young girl out there who might listen to your story or see your picture and think, actually, because of you, I can do it. That's and right. I think, you know, a lot of us, I know that um, I hate having my photo taken. I don't like my photo anywhere. But I think of a young girl out there who might look like me, who might think, oh, actually, I can do that. I don't know anyone who's doing a podcast or who's on TV or doing whatever. And if she looks like me, maybe I can do it. And I think that... That's an important thing to keep in mind for all of us. It absolutely is. Hey, I can tell you that when I was 19 and I came to Australia and I looked at Australian media and it was so freaking white, every time I saw a brown face, every time I saw Walid Ali or Antoinette Latouf on television, I was like, yes. If there isn't representation, then what you're counting on is a few individuals who see a vision, who have a very clear vision for a different world and will therefore push through those barriers regardless, right? But then that's a lot of work on those individuals' part as well. And we can't expect all people to have that level of clarity and vision and resilience. And it's not fair to expect that of people anyway. If they don't see it, they're not going to believe they'll be able to do it. Growing up, there were not many heroes to look up to, right? Especially when you're a black woman, because the only heroes you see are entertainers, right? Which was not surprising. I wanted to go be a singer because that's where you see success. Entertainers, athletes, that's where you see success. So you really don't see a world that actually shows you that you can do other things. The only person who really was there at the time and was a shining light was Indra Nui. So even though she wasn't a black woman, she was a woman of color. She was an immigrant. 
And that was very consoling to me to see a woman who wasn't born in America. She was born in India, raised in India, studied in India, was able to come into PepsiCo and rise all the way to the top. And she was the first female CEO of PepsiCo. And of course, it goes without saying I'm a person of color. Um, but it was lovely to see that because I knew that if she could, I could, right? Because it is possible. And that in itself kept me going, especially when my early career, I was having all the challenges, being discriminated against, being treated like garbage. You sort of knew that you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel because, you know, all I learned from it, because I would read all her interviews and injury was always work harder, you know, work hard to the point nobody can dispute your work. And that was a pathway I took in terms of the way to survive here is I'm not going to get any favors because nobody's just going to by default connect with you, right? We know even in organizations, 77% of people will pick a successor of their own race and gender. It's even the reason why women struggle to get up there because you don't you have You pick to, somebody who looks like you. Who looks like you, exactly. It's a natural human instinct to go, you remind me of a younger me. Now, when you see a black-ass young girl from Nigeria, how will I ever remind your young version of you? Our experiences are so different. And so what, indirect, what I learned from her was just, Work hard so that your work is undisputed. They're going to have you because they need you, right? And it's going to trump everything. And that was what I did. And, you know, that was the blueprint I followed. But that's also why I do what I do, because I think that should not be the standard. Um, you know, it's what Indra had to do. It's what I had to do. But it's not what the next generation should have to do, right? They should have the right to. It's okay to be average and be a person of color. You don't always have to be spectacular and be one of the 1%. And sometimes I say this and it sounds controversial. And I'm like, every society has people doing different things. The burden should not be on us that to be successful in corporate life, I have to work an 18-hour day when my colleagues are working eight-hour days. We should have a place where we can all work eight hours and whoever's a star is a star, right? Um, regardless of your race. So I literally took Indra's handbook and that's why I'm here because she was right. She she knew this. She lived through it. And that's why I fight every day to make sure that other people don't have to use that handbook because that handbook is completely unfair and it comes at a great price. And I love that she proudly says you can't have it all, right? Um, and you can't have it all when you have to do what we're doing. But we have to now create a pathway for a new generation. Nobody can have it all, but to be able to have it in balance, regardless of the color of their skin. So I used to listen to Triple J Breakfast uh, when Brooke was on the show as the newsreader. And I got so excited when I saw that she was going to be the newsreader first of all because she was a young Indigenous woman from the Hunter Valley as well. She's from Musselbrook and she was exactly what I wanted to be. She then used to begin her morning news with Yama and hearing someone say hello or a greeting in language on a station like Triple J it, w it was kind of like finally we're hearing something of our languages being shared. It's going to make me emotional. <laughs> um, it's really important. Yeah, it is really important. Um, and it was done in a way that was just, it was just normal. She would just say it so that people heard it every day and it just became a part of a conversation. It started a conversation where people asked what it meant and what it meant to her and then it was just a normal part of that show every day. Do we underestimate what it means to young Indigenous men and women to see Indigenous role models, to hear language, to normalise Indigenous culture in our everyday life? Do we underestimate, Bronte, what that means? Yeah, definitely. I remember my first encounter with 
Aboriginal people on TV, people who look like my mum and my grandma. I was at home from school sick one day and I was stumbling and I was flicking through the channels and I stumbled across an ITV and that was the first time at 15 or 16 that I'd ever really seen an Aboriginal person on TV and I think that was a big a big point in my life where I thought I shouldn't only be seeing Aboriginal people on NITV, I should be seeing them on mainstream media as well. So it definitely is important to see people who look like you and your family on TV and in the radio as well. And Brooke Boney was the first Indigenous person on breakfast TV. Mm-hmm. Going from radio, seeing your your role model, Maddie, from go from radio to TV, mm-hmm. what did that mean? So much. I can't really, uh, almost can't put it into words. You're just so happy for your mob to do well because it feels like when one of us win, we all do. And it shows that I can do it as well and anyone can do it as well. And it kind of goes across the board in any field, any industry. Um, You see someone succeed and then you know that you can as well. When you look at the statistics or just if let's broaden it out to STEM, the STEM report came out last year and I was pretty horrified to see that 0.05% of STEM graduates were Aboriginal people, not even looking at gender balance in that. Um, so we're, we're a minority of a minority. We probably, yeah, it's very rare to see women in STEM. Um, it's very rare to see Aboriginal women in STEM. So I think something that gets frustrating as a CEO in this area is like if I have a male with me, people still want to talk to the guy about business decisions. That's very annoying. I think the way that we look at how technology is used is very gendered as well. So you know, I've had teachers come up to me recently going, oh, do you do what you do in fashion? Because that's how we're going to get the girls involved. I, I think people still have a very gendered way of looking at how women and girls engage in STEM and in business Um, and we're seeing that in our education system still. Not only am I an Indigenous woman running a tech company and cutting-edge tech from remote communities often, I still have to deal with this stuff about biases and perceived biases about our abilities and I think that will always be there to a degree in my lifetime which is really annoying Um, but you know, I think it's definitely, you know, when you're successful and you're not a white man, you're resented a lot more uh, and there's a lot of efforts to pull you down and um, and to also elevate people who are not as qualified. I call it whitewashing, which is where um, there's huge efforts put into making you invisible and um, elevating people around you that um, are nowhere near as qualified. I think they need the role models, they need mentoring programs, they need, you know, but it goes right down to school, you know, primary school, um, high school. They need to have those role models in primary school among their teachers, you know. Um, Teachers are so important. They're so influential in people's lives. You know, you have one bad teacher who, you know, destroys your confidence in something and it can really affect the pathway down which you go. So I think going, we need to go right back to, you know, primary school education, etc., and make sure we have things in place all the way through. I think coming to Australia was a root shock. Um, it's a root shock to anybody anyway, because language is different. 
I know tongues mean something different in Australia than it means elsewhere. Uh, you know, all those little nuances. So language is different. Culture is different. Lifestyle is different. And that's why a lot of people of color who come to Australia don't stay. Like a lot of the people who came in at the time I came in, none of them stayed. They left. They were like, I can't do this anymore. And that's why Australia has a reputation for being extremely racist. But why I stayed was that I realized that people weren't deliberately racist. And that's the difference. They were just ignorant. In the intent of it, that person is not thinking that I want to be malicious to you. It's just more about it's an island. It's isolated. So when you say Nigeria, people are looking at you like, where? So I had to always just say Africa because that was as close as anybody knew what that was. Um, so it's a very different thing. And so for me, at first, you know, you go through that depression and whatever. And then I came out on the other end going, OK, let's do this. You know, let me. And it took me, to be honest, the only way I fit in in Australia was assimilating to a point of, which is where I now had to do a full circle because I realized the only way I was going to make it in this society was changing to become what they needed me to be. And the second I did that, I had no problems anymore. My accent was gone. I changed my name into something they could pronounce. You know, I became as Australian as you could be and I had no problems anymore. I became one of the group. When I talk about that racism is woven so deep into the fabric of all our societies, it's not funny because a lot of people think to be racist, your parents have to sit you down and say, hate the Chinese, hate the black people and whatever. They don't need to teach you that. It is absorbed in all the things you see around you. When you walk into a beauty hall and this is what's called a mainstream brand, it's told you that the world only exists for people who look like that, right? It's a big deal because this shapes your idea of worth. Because when everywhere you go to, you're being turned down, you're being rejected, including in places that literally you're supposed to be able to buy your way into like a damn lipstick. And then it's still not, you're not allowed in here. So that really damages a person just beyond because people are like, but it's just a lipstick. No, it's life. It's just understanding that I am so unwanted, right? I am just so unwanted in everything. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, so I think for me, that's the part that people don't see when we talk about making products available for everybody. because. At least we should have one place as we continue to try and fix the world where everybody can feel human. Every woman and every man has the right to feel beautiful. I think we've learned that we have to acknowledge the, the potential of pandemics to be catastrophic events. They are natural disasters. And I think until now we'd seen a lot of very fixed views on pandemic preparedness you know, I think there's a whole global health sector that has thrived on, you know, the great white saviors, you know, helping low-income countries and little brown people, basically, which, uh, you know, was out of its comfort zone for most of last year because instead of, you know, being the benevolent white saviors, many of these people were fighting the battle on their own home ground and unable to control the pandemic while Small Pacific islands like Samoa did really well by closing their border. Countries like Vietnam did very well. And we saw kind of a reversal in that geopolitical dynamic, which was interesting. And this year, of course, with the vaccines, then we see the inequity of access and the fact that wealthy countries, except for Australia, of course, um, have been able to uh, get rapid access to vaccines and vaccinate their populations. And the countries that haven't, have had uh, more catastrophic epidemics this year with the variants of concern, many of most of those low-income countries. And so, you know, the global health uh, crowd is back in comfortable territory. So that's been interesting. I think bodily leaks, um, obviously there's been the whole body positivity movement. For women, I think that's amazing. And obviously we've got lots of champions wearing our brand and, you know, that's great. 
But bodily leaks, it's the next thing. It's the thing we're trying to break down. So we're doing it with periods and the next part is obviously um, incontinence because that's a huge thing that one in three women face and one in 10 men by the time they're 50. So we, we need to talk about those discussions as well. All we are trying to do is normalise um, what 800 million people globally experience. And it, it can be icky and that's the reality. And we're trying to show, you know, this can happen to people. Yeah, I thought that was quite shocking. I mean, this is what I say to people, most likely that the person next to you is bleeding from their vagina. So uh, <laughs> um, the reality is that's going on and we're used to it. I'm used to it. It's part of my life. It's not gross or shameful, but as I said, it can be annoying and a bit uncomfortable because you get pain, but yeah, we really just wanted to normalise what, as I said, 800 million people globally experience. It's so important because it's a basic human right to have access to a menstrual product. You have access to toilet paper, <laughs> you know, why not access to a product that can protect you and give you more dignity? To hear and learn about those women and young girls out there who are using newspapers and dirty rags, putting their lives at risk, really, it's shameful. All our guests took their experiences, however difficult they might have been, and turned them into something positive. From poor maternity leave policies came gender-neutral parental policies. From having to take days off for period pain came period miscarriage and menopause leave. We revisit the importance of happiness, the four-day working week, and the qualities of good leadership. Empathy, authenticity, and courage, all shared by our incredible guests. We're also reminded of the work that remains, equal pay, equal representation, and of course, reconciliation. Happiness is not really a sought after goal for a lot of people. I think most people think it's a bit, a little bit trite, you know, and, and it seems, it seems kind of insignificant when you compare it to the, to the other really great, you know, aspirations out there, like being super determined or being super focused or achieving your goals or whatever it is. But I really think someone who is happy most of the time is generally more productive, more energetic, more focused, more determined. And we all know that intuitively, right? We can be feeling really lethargic sitting at our desk trying to work on something, not getting it done. We go for a walk with a friend. Hey, presto, that's a mood booster for us, right? You know, we feel more energetic. We feel happier. We can sit back down at our desk. We feel more productive. We feel like we're more in the swing of things. So I think happiness is a goal that we should strive for. But I also want to temper that with, I don't think it's a destination. And I don't think we ever reach a point of saying, yep, I am happy and I will be happy forevermore. I'm a big believer in some hybrid model because you just need that little bit of staff spirit and those spontaneous moments where you come up with ideas together. So I'm a bit of like a half-half. Time at home is fantastic for great outputs and clearing people's minds, but being on Zoom day in, day out, it's just I just don't think that's healthy for us. So, you know, I think as a leader as well in the new age, it's about empathetic leadership. And so, you know, trying to listen to your customers, listen to your staff and empathize where they're at instead of just trying to push them to do things and meet your agenda. So I think that's the style of leadership that I follow. Like I'm not about clock watching either. So I think that's important. It's about if you have clear business objectives and you mentor your staff to get there, I think you get the outcomes. And, and that's what I do with my staff. I'm always very clear on what their outcomes should be. 
and how we get there, not how do you just do it on your own, how do we get there, what are the resources you need, what does the business need to get this over the line in the period that we need it to. It's just about changing structures and doing things differently for purpose and for good change. There's no point doing things only for profit. I mean, I I know there's people that will argue with me on that front, but yeah, I just think different structures. We don't need to continue with traditional structures anymore. Some of them work, some of them don't. Has purpose or the end result one of the things that you've looked at? It wasn't originally, but I also originally never felt that my work was work. That makes sense. I I always enjoyed what I was doing, otherwise I didn't do it. And really ever since my dad died, which was about five years ago now, his death really made me reevaluate what I was doing and why. And that's when I really became more focused on no assholes and just not doing anything that doesn't have some good result in the end apart from profit. They don't have to be separate. You can do good and make plenty of money along the same way. But also I think revisiting the way that the relationships are in terms of hierarchies and how people treat each other, I think that can change as well. And I just want like one last little thing, which is not a little thing at all. It's a very big thing. And that is, it is unacceptable to have Aboriginal Australians still without a voice in Parliament in the way of the Charter that they've written, which is the most exquisite document. We have a very long way to go. And that could happen very quickly. You know, we don't need to have all those mealy mouth words about, oh, you know, what if they get too much control? I mean, and so I want to see more and more Aboriginal people as leaders and they certainly are in their own communities and they should be across all of our communities. I think reconciliation to me where I'm currently at means equal opportunity but not equality it means equity across non-Indigenous and Indigenous people. What's the difference between equity and equality in your mind? Equality means giving everyone exactly the same benefits but equity means taking possibly a little bit away from those who are already at a high privilege or not taking away but evening the playing field yeah there's a quite a good picture that has three people standing on boxes looking over a fence and one they're all different heights so they give them all the same size box and they all can't look over the fence some of them still looking at the fence but once they give them all their own size box then they can all look over this fence at the same height. I love that image. Yeah that's what it means to me. It means getting equal opportunity and seeing a reconciled Australia move forward together just with a lot more knowledge and understanding of the history of Australia. On a personal level I think a reconciled Australia is when my little sister won't come home from school and say someone's asked me if I'm actually Aboriginal because I'm fair-skinned and in the same way it's when my darker-skinned Indigenous uncle won't get followed around at the shops. I think like what Charlotte said it is achieving equity not equality because to be reconciled I think Australia needs to realise that because of the impacts of colonisation, the stolen generation, intergenerational trauma Indigenous people aren't equal right now. There's so much history that has made us not have access to those equal opportunities. So I I love GO and I love what GO has done for me, but organisations like that shouldn't have to exist if Australia is reconciled. So that's what it means. Well, we need to have very honest conversations 
first of all. We don't really have uncomfortable conversations in this country. We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and telling the truth about what's happened. Why do you think we shy away from truth-telling? I think no one wants to be a part of something like the Stolen Generations. No one wants, on either side, (laughs) no one wants to be complicit in something like the Stolen Generations and no one wants to have benefited from something like that either. It's an uncomfortable truth. It's an uncomfortable history that we have in, in this country. But unless we acknowledge it, we're not trying to blame anybody today but it's acknowledging that perhaps by some people being incredibly disadvantaged and displaced you may have indirectly benefited from that and unless we acknowledge that talk about it and genuinely consult the people that it affects on how we repair not just reconciling in this sort of corporate way That doesn't take away from the importance of things like reconciliation action plans though, does it? No, no, they're they're important, but we need to go further. I think we're at a point and we have have reached a turning point in this last year. I think there has been a shift and we need to just keep going further. I think we can do more. I actually believe in this country and the people that are in it and the people that I know that we can definitely do more. So many people who are experiencing um, physical and mental pain in relation to a very normal monthly problem being menstruation or menopause, which is pretty normal and a lot of women or most women go through it whether they have symptoms or not, not everyone does. Um, And then miscarriage, which is an unexpected bodily symptom. So they're all either normal bodily symptoms or unexpected. So being aware of that, I didn't feel it was right that you have to use sick leave um, in the first place when you have that every month for some people. Beyond that, we also wanted to, I mean, a part of our mission at Modi Body is to open conversations and to normalise all conversations around bodily leaks, menstruation and women's health. And so this is another step in doing that because it allows our employees to go to their direct reports and their managers and say, um, you know, I'm having physical problems. So, you know, and I want to stay at home. I either want to stay at home or I'm going to take the day off. And they won't feel shamed or um, vilified for that, which I think in some workforces is such a guilt for women to stand up and say, you know, I've got this problem. They feel really bad. And yet I know from our employees, it was received extremely positively. Some people have accessed it. Um, And the feedback is, you know what, Christy, what this does, it gives me more confidence and I'm more loyal to Modi Body and they come back and they give 200%. So they're not dropping the ball, which people go, oh, you know, they're just lazy and dropping the ball. No, no, those employees are going to come back and give more to the company. And so that's why we did it. The other issue is that, you know, you're pushing through that pain. So, you know, whether you're getting the best out of your staff at that time anyway, like, why should we make people push through it's debilitating it's terrible when you're experiencing those level of symptoms um just give them a day off let them work from home whatever suits them and as i said they'll come back firing so um that's why it's not about from us at modi body or my leadership style you've got to be here nine to five no it shouldn't be like that and the future of work shouldn't be either um we need to find yes i get we all there's got to be times where we need to be in the office but I think we can get more flexibility around the whole way we work and what suits your lifestyle. For me as a a mum of four, you know, I've had to have flexibility and build that into my life. So, but it doesn't mean I don't log on between 8.30 and 11 and do work some nights. 
uh, for others, they might say, oh, that's just burnout and that's bad. But that suited me because then I can, you know, I can go away and I can go and see my children in that event that they're in or I don't feel guilty. And, and I do encourage that among our staff. And, you know, if you're caring for someone or you're the main carer at home, that can be such a burden, those types of hours on someone instead of just talking it through and personalising, just like we do with our website and we personalise the shopping experience, we need to personalise the, the, um, the work experience. So tell us about your four-day working week. And this is in the wake of the Icelandic reports that came out last week where they said it was an unheralded success. I think they tested it with 1% of the Icelandic population and it improved well-being, reduced stress, increased productivity. Um, participants reported an improved work-life balance. Spain's trialling it. Countries in Europe have started to think like this. Tell us what you did with the four-day working week and how it's working for you. And just to be clear, this is working for four days but being paid for five. Exactly right. So when we first decided to actually implement it, we decided to announce it in our company conference in August of 2019, so July, August of 2019. But what we did was say we announced that we were going to do it, but we wanted everybody to be involved in working out how it would work. So one of the things that we'd learned from the research was instead of us designing it as leaders, for it to work, we needed everybody's input into it. So we announced it at our company conference. Um, and for the most part, people were excited, but not everybody. Some people thought it was a terrible idea. And we workshopped, you know, we did kind of all the different, you know, we had tables with the black hat and the, you know, and the, the, all the things that could go wrong and all the problems that we thought we could have. And we asked anybody that wanted to be involved, any level of the business, if they wanted to be involved in the workshops of designing how it would work, they could put their hand up and have a say in that. And we had lots of workshops. We probably over-engineered it, if I'm honest. That said, I don't know if it would have been so successful if we hadn't. So it's hard to know. But we did. I mean, you know, we got to a point we actually said at one point, we're trying to solve problems that the business has, regardless of whether it's five days a week or four days a week. You know, how many times do we answer the phone within three rings? I mean, it got very granular at some point. So everyone participated and we came up with productivity guidelines by role so that we knew if you were meeting those guidelines, you could qualify. You could get paid five days and take a day off as long as you were still doing, you know, meeting the outcomes. It's all about how do we continually look to twist the dial to improve. And that, for me, is what will improve outcomes in workplaces across Australia and over the next decade. You know, we talk about what does the future of work look like. That's where I think if we can keep moving the dial, then it creates better opportunities for everybody. The key thing is going to come down to the war for talent. I have been quite astounded at how much the environment has flipped just in the last 18 months in terms of the war for talent so you know when at the beginning of covid there was a lots of candidates not many jobs that happens in any recession and often even in kind of near recessions i've been through that several times in my career but for it to have flipped so quickly and so dramatically to a point where we are so candidate short at the moment uh, you know i expected where we are now to take about 10 years to get to so for it to have come so quickly and anybody that's trying to hire at the moment will probably be experiencing significant challenges in hiring because we don't have we have the lowest mobility in the job market we've ever had we have um falling unemployment very quickly and remember that the unemployment rate is a lag indicator not a lead indicator and we also have you know limited immigration limited backpackers limited students because of what's going on in the external environment and so that has created a real shortage and we we, similarly we have almost every organization in Australia simultaneously going okay let's get on with it now let's go ahead with our hiring plans you know so it's created this this speed in terms of demand and the reason I'm highlighting that is that I think that will shape 
where we get to. And that's why I, mean, I actually come back to meaningful work, because right now we're seeing what typically happens in a, you know, in a capitalist environment. What's in demand is the, the salaries are going up and that will come out in the in the um, as a lag factor as well as we see. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about wage growth, but we're seeing that firsthand. We're seeing candidates being offered significantly more salaries higher salaries than they have been typically for these roles. But that's not sustainable. And there's a lot of organisations that can't afford to do that necessarily in terms of their structures and the way they work. So people will be looking at the other levers that they can pull. And we're already seeing with COVID organisations that can't offer flexible work. That has become, used to be a nice to have, it's become almost unexpected. And organisations that can't offer that are really struggling in that war for talent. So I think we're going to have to get inventive in the business world about how we attract and keep our people or we might see a bit of a fragmentation of the of the market in terms of some organizations offering certain areas i you've heard me talk before Shirley, about price waterhouse cooper's workforce of the future report where they talk about four worlds and there might be this fragmentation about how the organizations differently try and attract different candidates but that war for talent is going to be what drives everything so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it I certainly want to see equal pay and equal pay is something, as Sophie suggested, a lot of people use a lot of weasel words about and we've had endless inquiries into how to achieve equal pay. It actually isn't that hard. So equal pay is important. I feel very, very strongly about women's health and safety and that's that includes domestic safety and, you know, a public health system. It measures risk about the drugs that women use and take in their lives. I mean, reproductive lives are long, and if you want to protect a society, you have to make sure that you know that, that only the right drugs are available during those times when we might need them. So, health and safety, and that includes all the domestic violence issues and and rape. And I suppose I, my last thing it is, I want truth to power in Parliament. I'm oversizing people in three areas of government. You know, I want honour and respect restored to a parliament. Yes, one of the perhaps obvious things is that in all our institutions and organisations, why aren't we still aiming for 50-50? In so many places, we're very congratulatory of ourselves when we have 20% women um, in organisations. And I understand when you're trying to change an organisation that only has 10 or 15% women, it's really challenging. It's not straightforward. But we do need to see more women in leadership roles. And I don't mean that they're all the CEOs, but that they are in roles of influence and authority. And in government, we need to see people who are decent and respectful and brave, compassionate and brave. And that's the world as it should be. How different would our lives be if we had equal pay? If women were half the voice of every leadership team and board, if our First Nations people had fair and equitable representation and we were honest and open about our history, embraced our heritage and walked into the future together. I hope that we can all take the lessons our guests have shared into our own lives to not only amplify their work, but to create a better decade of leadership ahead. Thank you so much for joining us on season four of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons. A huge thank you to Alison Ho, our producer, to Madeline Hislop for the weekly articles that accompanied the podcasts, to Angela Priestley and Tala Lambert for their vision and courage in amplifying women's stories, and for taking a bet on me as your host. I have loved every minute of this season, and we wouldn't be here without Salesforce, who supported season four. 
Finally, thank you to our wonderful guests. Without them, there is no podcast, and without their work, we would all be worse off. It has been such a joy to bring you the stories of our incredible female guests each week. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. We would love to hear from you. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. Thanks so much for joining us and until our paths cross again, bye for now. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.